0: This podcast has been brought to you by the Pumping Marvellous Foundation.
1: In our series of podcasts, talking to people about heart failure, we look beyond the cardiologist and delve into
0: what makes people tick. What's their secret source, The elixir that drives people to overcome and conquer extreme situations. Heart failure
1: and beyond.
0: So what's your name and where'd you come from?
1: Uh, I'm Gav, I live in Darwin in Lancashire.
0: Okay, um, because this is a global podcast platform, where's Lancashire? And what's uh, what's something that, about Lancashire that maybe people wouldn't know?
1: Uh, something about Lancashire that people wouldn't know? Um, we're famous for our hot pot, so which is uh, layers of potato and meat, and usually lamb meat. Uh, so Lancashire's in the northwest of England, so we like a lot of comfort food. We like to uh, make sure we keep uh, ourselves not hearty and warm because we get a lot of wet weather in the northwest of england so we're not struggling with horse pipe bands here
0: no we've got lots of water haven't we
1: yeah
0: mind you in the area that you lived in darwin area there was a there was a water problem wasn't there at the weekend or something or
1: yeah, they had a burst main and I believe it was like five meters down or something, so it took out um, half of Blackburn with Darwin. So we've got two so we got two towns. We've got Darwin, which is like the Moorland sort of town, and then we got Blackburn, which is its bigger neighbour, but the two combined, but it's known as Blackburn with Darwin, not Blackburn and Darwin, because if you had um, Blackburn and Darwin it would be known if it was shortened, it would be known as a bad council. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so i mean big in the industrial revolution obviously in the 19th century and um uh famous for its mills and uh Flatburn and the east lancashire i mean i live in east lancashire as well so um and we certainly get uh that's probably uh, the mills were lo- located because of the leeds Liverpool canal and the uh, yeah carpets um and the moisture in the air
1: yeah definitely and they could yeah, and the the cotton, they could access the cotton uh, easy enough. And, yeah, so a lot of mills, and a lot of them have been demolished now, but there's still one or two remnants sitting around. So we've got the massive Indian mill chimney in Darwin. It's a bit of a landmark apart from the other one, which is the Jubilee Tower, Darwin Tower.
0: So um, tell us about yourself when you were growing up um, at school, college or whatever. Tell us about gas then. So-
1: yeah, so I'm one of five children. So I was one of um, four boys. I was the fourth boy. Uh, and my uh, parents always wanted a girl. Um, so they carried on one step further and they managed to get a girl. Uh, I'm one of five G's. So we're all, we all, are, all our first names began with G. So we had Glenn, Gary, Guy, Gavin, and Gail. So it was, a, it was a bit confusing when mail arrived and it said G Redhead when we got a little bit older. And we even had a dog called Gus at one point.
0: So what 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 were you like at school though? But you know, were you a rebel? Were you were you um, compliant? What were you? Who were you?
1: Um, I think I I, I think I was fairly compliant because I I, I think I've got this strong moral compass. I have a sense of right and wrong and justice, uh, and that's kind of part of my my growing up. My my mum and my dad were fairly strict. My mum was a nurse, and with having so many children, I think they had to rule the roofs a little bit. Because um, we could be a bit chaotic. I had two older brothers um, that were a little bit more off the rail, shall we say. We had an, I, my older brother, our oldest brother, Glenn, He he was like me. He was quite compliant and, and did everything that was required. Um, I wasn't I wasn't so much of a rebel, um, uh, and but I used to get blamed a lot. My sister used to trip me up and then bl- uh, tell my dad that I'd kicked her, and I'd I'd probably get punished for that. And uh, she was a, she was a bit of a naughty one as well. Did you uh, did you get did you get in trouble at school
0: at all, or did you have any detentions, or or were you um, caught?
1: I don't I don't think I, I don't think I was too naughty. I think I think I was I was fairly good at school. Uh, I'm not saying I didn't um, uh, nick off or wag off or whatever you want to say. They uh, had the, the odd day uh, where I decided I wouldn't go to school when I, there were lessons that I didn't like. Um, I was keen on. I quite liked maths. I I like I'm quite analytical, so I like things that have got good structure to them. Um, I can be creative, uh, but I've had to develop that skill. I'm not I'm not as creative. I'm more analytical, so I I see lots of facts and figures and um, things like that. So so maths was a a, a strong suit when I was at school, especially at primary school. It was one of these that if they put as fast as they could write um, questions on the chalkboard, I was answering them. Um, I, I was one of these where if they wrote a test on the board and they wrote the questions. If they wrote them on the chalkboard, I'd write them. i write the answers down or shout shown them out again.
0: Showing your age, chalkboard. <laughs> I know. I
1: know. Yeah, it's definitely it was one of those. Um, chalkboard, they were yeah. just bringing
0: in um, white markers when I was. So I'm yeah. fifty-two. So just bringing in white markers, but even now, white markers. It's it's all the electronic boards and everything, isn't it?
1: That's it. Yeah, it's all it's all electronic board where they can capture everything that's been written and things. Yeah, I'm 57, so, so chalkboards were part of my my growing up, but not not for us actually. We didn't. We, 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 I'm not as old as slates, um, but chalkboards. The teachers were definitely using chalkboards and throwing chalk dusters at you if you, if you got out of hand. Um, and you're I,
0: you're I, the second second person I've, in, I've I've interviewed in the last, well, I've interviewed a lot of people at the second person who has a chalk duster launched at them
1: yeah 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 it's definitely was one of those things i think it was part of your life like rite of passage wasn't it so you have to have the chalkboard thrown at least one time and i think if i was going to get in trouble it was more because i'm i'd say i'm quite quick witted so i can come up with a quip quite quickly so uh, i'm one of these i I quite like um to make people laugh i was quite small I, i remember until i was about 16 i was under five foot um, and I'm six one now, so I was a late developer, shall we say. Um, so I was, I, I was one of these people that liked to joke, and if if I got fed up, that that's usually uh, something that 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 made me want to do something more, something more interesting. So that's that's probably the creative side, the way it leaked out, doing being more joking, more of a comedian, coming up with things, and um, yeah, quite quick witted. So what
0: uh, what did you want to do as a as a as a teenager, what what were your aspirations?
1: When I was younger, I, I, it's be interesting because my dad was in the um, the merchant navy when I, when I was very young. Uh, but he became he went into the civil service. But I was kind of I had this really strong thing guiding me was this sense of of, of right and wrong. So being a policeman or something along those lines was kind of where I was going. My mum was a nurse and she was kind of pushing me towards the medical side. you want to not interested in getting on the, uh, the medical side. I do remember one day being dressed up as a as a doctor and, and um, turned up for one of these fancy dress things as, as a child. And, and I've been... Sort of like a stethoscope around my neck a doctor's coat on that trailed along the floor and uh, a knife fork and spoon in my pocket I don't know what that was about but yeah but I did win the competition so yeah, and it was it was in an uh, it was at the infer- the local infirmary in Blackman so yeah so I think I had a bit of an advantage of being dressed as a doctor in a, in a hospital setting uh, as a fancy dress but that it was those kind of things things that law enforcement things um and and I didn't I didn't actually become a a police officer but i did become a magistrate at one point i was a magistrate for over 10 years really and so i so i had some of that yeah so that that
0: did come
1: back in later on in my life yeah i was a jp yeah and i and i specialized in the the youth court as well so i've always worked with uh, young people
0: wow i didn't realize that i didn't know that so there you go that's probably answered one of my questions actually but what what um so, one of your best friends, how would they describe you? Or how would your best friends describe you? Um,
1: I, think they, I think they'd say I was quite sociable. Um, I'm not one of these, I'm not a massive, heavy drinker, even though I like a beer. I, I, I don't go out and drink 10 pints or 12 pints. I've never been one of those kind of people. I, I'm quite a sociable person. I used to, when we, I, I was, right, we're going back 30 years, 30 plus years. I was very much into playing darts or playing snooker, having a pint that way. I wasn't one that sat at the bar and, and saw how many pints I could get down my neck and didn't do, I do they really did shots at in, in those days. But I was one of these people, I was on the darts team, I'd be part of the football team. I didn't mind, you know, having a game of snooker. So it was kind of the social side of drinking was more appealing to me than seeing whether I could get enough beer down my neck to, to watch it come back up in technical. Technical, yeah, a technical yawn. They used to call it.
0: Oh, so if um, so looking back on your life, is there anything that you'd like to change? Uh, that's a challenge. Or done differently.
1: Um, I mean, I'm quite happy with my lot. I, I did. I did try to get into the Navy at one point, and I did actually get in, and it took a long time because I've had a heart condition since I was born. Um, so I, I battled to get into the Navy, and I think that was just a – it was one of those things. Dad had the Merchant Navy background. My brother was in the Navy. And it, it just came around. Um, I'd done a few sort of – they call them youth youth opportunity schemes those days. They were like a, like a modern apprenticeship now would be like 12 – you did, you did sort of nine or 12 months as a taster thing, and then if the company thought you were good enough. And I did one of those for the council. I left school on the Friday thinking that I've got I've got a few weeks to look for a job, and my mum signed me up for a youth opportunity scheme on the Monday. Um, so I didn't actually get any time off. So I went working for the council. Uh, and then I did some accountancy ones, and I decided I wanted a change. I, did, I wanted to do something different. I knew this wasn't for me, so I ended up battling to get in the Navy, and it took me 12 months to get into the Navy. And then once i got into navy i started doing the training i got into week five and they were the physical side of it was the challenge that that was the challenge they were doing all these long runs and everything and i was just falling further and further behind i was being literally dragged around uh, by my opponents and everything so um at that stage i already knew um uh, my wife i was engaged to her so i was I'd had a life outside the Navy and a lot of young people that go into the Navy don't have any understanding of what it's like to have anything other than the Navy. And but I, although I have a sense of right and wrong, I didn't like the controlling element of the Navy. The, the disciplinary side was too extreme for me. So combined with the physical side and that I had I had an option. I had I had two days to make a decision. I either came out of the Navy that week or I had to do. Uh. I think it was three and a half years. Um, I had to do two year, a minimum two-year contract and an 18-month notice period. So I had two days to make my mind outside. I've just made the decision. Uh, came home, dad wasn't happy, um, brought shame on the family because I'd come out of the Navy and he'd, he'd made this big song and dance about me going, another son going into the Navy, looking forward to my passing out parade, but I just knew it wasn't for me. Um, so I came out of the Navy and then uh, he wasn't keen on having me back home. So I uh, found, because I'd done accounts previously before I went in the Navy, I ended up going to um, a hotel, a four-star hotel in the Lake District, the old England on on in Bournemouth on Windermere. And I had the best office view ever. My office window looked straight down Lake Windermere so I could see the ferries coming in and out and all the people. Um, so I did that for around 12 months. So in terms of the point that you were asking, in terms of regrets, it's one of those things is like, what if? What if I had stayed in? You know, it's 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 not a regret, but it's it's always that it's in the back of your mind, wondering if I had stayed in the navy, where would I be? Because I was being pushed for. Oh well, you've got the potential to be an officer. They were trying everything to keep me in, uh, and I just had to make a decision that I was I was coming out. So that's not a regret as much, but i know always a uh, what if kind of. So you said you'd had mind.
0: your heart condition from from birth, just congenital. Yeah. How much has that affected you, or has it? Or has it not?
1: Um, when I was at school, I couldn't do a lot of distance. I think anything, anything like I could do a hundred meter sprint, and I was quite good, quite fast, and I was always quite lean. Um, but if I, if they were doing cross country running, that would cripple me. So I couldn't, I couldn't do cross country running. So I I tended to hook up with one or two people that weren't that keen on doing cross country either. And one of them, when we did cross country runs, we used to run round the backs of houses up sort of towards Darwin Tower. Uh, and one of them lived on that route. So what we were able to do was to hide in his back garden until they all started coming back the other way, and then okay. um, we we wouldn't have to do the full route. And then we'd run back in with the rest, still still towards the tail end. Um, it worked about three or four times until there was a time when one of the teachers decided they would go to the end point and check everybody in and everybody out at at the turning point. So we got caught out that time and we got punished for that.
0: That's funny. I I did exactly (laughs) the same. Uh, And there was a bush, this big bush that sort of like was on the, on the cusp of the big circle. So you used to run at probably about 2K, 3K and then you used to take a right uh, and then go around this big circle and come back. But at that point, where the two paths met, uh, was yeah. this bush and we used to hide in this bush every year. I got away with it, unbelievably. Yeah. I think perfect. I think I used to wait until the very end. So uh the yeah. um PE's uh, PE guy's expectations as I was I was no good anyway. So uh
1: um, yeah. Yeah, turned off in the middle
0: to... or at the start, then it would have been different.
1: Yeah, I remember having hospital appointments all over the Northwest. I- I used to go to Liverpool or Blackpool. I don't know what it was about children's cardiology. It sort of like moved around. I went to Merton Street in 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 Liverpool, um, the same Blackpool. And it it used a lot of it was monitoring. I don't. I never really had any major interventions. There was one point where they looked at open heart surgery. I think I was about early teens, and I was having a period where I was falling asleep eating my meals, and I was really struggling. Um, And they and they took me in and, and. I do remember them putting a camera in through my groin, um, and and I think they were taking X-rays. Of, they were taking X-rays above my head. I just remember a certain amount of heat. I don't know what it was, whether it was the X-ray I was feeling, but I just remember this heat every time they said they were taking pictures or um, live X-rays, etc. But um, yeah, so that wasn't that wasn't pleasant, but it didn't it didn't massively affect me. It, I think I don't know if you if you remember Nico uh, whether it was something that you know, but um, you used to be able to get something called a green card when you were looking for jobs. So if you had a disability, you could get a green card, and it meant that you were disabled, and it meant that if you applied for a job, they couldn't exempt you from the interview process. That you, you had like a, an automatic right. So it was it was kind of the, for one of the first disability rights. You got this green card, and it was like an employment thing that you you had to be interviewed. Um, so I had I do I do remember getting this green card, and it, it was. And it, it was one of the it was a balance, it was a challenge because it was you needed it to get access to things because they found out that you had some health issue that you were likely to be somebody who'd be going off, you wouldn't you wouldn't be as seen as popular, but um, you know, and whether you would get an interview or not, but having a green card meant that you were automatically thing. So it it was for me it was one of those things it were again this this strong, strong moral compass. It's like, well, yeah, it should be you should get interviewed you should have a thing but you should compete equally once you're in the interview it shouldn't be shouldn't be counted against you it should be um, are you the best person for the job regardless of whether you've got a health issue that might hold you back or you, you need some special uh, thing so to me it was uh, yeah it was it was an awkward thing having a green card was like labeling but it meant that I could when I went looking for jobs that I was able to uh, get access to interviews easier.
0: So did you from an early age, did you understand or did anybody ever tell you or discuss with you the trajectory of where you are now with the diagnosis of heart failure? Did anybody ever discuss
1: that with you? No, it was never. It was well, it was just one of those things is like, we'll monitor it. We'll see how it goes. It may develop. It may get worse. It may not. And, and a different, it was kind of part of this roller coaster of having my hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and I didn't really understand as a teenager. I didn't really understand all I knew was it just affected me. If I drank heavily, I you know, I, I would suffer a lot quicker than other people. If I tried to run anywhere, I couldn't do it. I get exhausted I got more tired if I was traveling anywhere. So. I didn't really it didn't really affect me too much. Um, until like in the sort of last few years when I, I've developed the heart failure, um, the only time it really, I had a really shocking diagnosis, and I said I battle to get into the navy. And I went to, I went to my the local, the way it works, you have a local medical. That the local medical immediately went, no, you've got, you've got, um, you've got a heart problem. Uh, you're excluded. You can't, you can't get in. So I appealed, and you go to Birmingham. So the next, that's the next level. So I went to Birmingham. So I turned up at Birmingham. I saw this um, health doctor, um, um, the the navy doctor. And he said, well, why are you trying to get in the Navy? You'll be dead by the time you're 25. So it, that was like kind of oh. nobody ever said, nobody had ever said anything like that to me. So I kind of rang my mum in tears and said, I can't How get in the Navy. How old were but you? I was 20, 21, 22. Right. So, yeah, so so that was kind of shocking. And she said, what oh, the hell's going on? So, I think, so she complained and everything. So then I got to, I got sent to Haslund. Uh, which was like the navy um, hospital uh, down in Portsmouth, and then they made the decision that I could be accepted. It would, they could give it a go, uh, would see how it went. Um, but obviously, as I said before, it didn't work out. But that's that's another story. But that was the only time where I've had like a, a shocking diagnosis, and uh, for the for the cardiomyopathy until I got the heart failure diagnosis.
0: So, what happened with the heart failure diagnosis? Do you want to talk us through that and where yeah. we are now? And
1: yeah, yeah. So. Um, so when I was uh, probably 2019, I developed a, a cough. Um, that was the, the main sort of thing, I had this cough. But a lot of people had coughs that year. I don't know what it was, it was pre-COVID. So it nothing to do with COVID, it was pre-COVID and a lot of people had coughs. Um, and this cough became persistent and I had it for around six months. But on the back of that, I got extreme fatigue. So if I I just started a new job, I was working for Lancashire County Council um, so I was working lots of hours. I was the only person that did my job. It was quite a strategic role, working with children and young people. The only person that did my job, so I would to work. Sometimes I'd go in at 8 o'clock in the morning to avoid the traffic because it's in another town. It was, it's quite a distance to travel. Uh, and then sometimes I wouldn't get on until 9 o'clock at night. So I was doing long days. So I put a lot of the fatigue down to this, the fact that I was doing long hours, and I started to work that through with my manager and say, look, we need to look at getting me some support or something. There's lots of hours uh, involved in this job. Um, but it just got gradually worse and worse, and I, and I approached my GP and said, uh, after a bit of wagging, uh, nagging by my wife, sorry, and she said, uh, you, need, "You need, I think you need to go and see uh, the GP now. This is going on too long. This is not just not a cough or a fatigue." So I turned up to my GP, and luckily, um, my my GP, Doctor Nynne, was a, a GPSI, so a, G, a GP with special interest in cardiology. So I think he picked up quite early on that there was something going on that was more li- linked to my hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So he started some initial testing, sent me for an echo or, or organised an ECG. Um, and I was just starting to do that. It started me on one or two meds. Uh, and I was just starting to develop more and more symptoms so when i was lying down at night i was getting more breath i had to be propped up on three pillows so some of the things now you you recognize as classic heart failure symptoms um and there was just going up the stairs it could take me two or three attempts to go up the stairs and I, i'd do three or four steps and then i have to stop catch my breath and then do another three or four steps and one night um my son and his girlfriend were over for a meal i um, my wife, we just had a meal and I just said it was it wasn't that late. It's probably about half nine or something. I said, I need to go to bed. I'm just too tired. So I, I got up the stairs, sat on the edge of the bed. I went to lie down on the bed and I just couldn't breathe. And I I just I didn't have enough energy to shout for my wife. So I had to text my wife and say, Look, you need to come up. So she came up and I said, I can't do this. I can't breathe. So she um rang for an ambulance. Um, so an ambulance came, checked me over. Um and they were uh, not sure, don't know, should we take you in? Should, do you want to go in? Do you want to not? And I said, yeah, I need to go in. I can't do this. I can't. I was coughing up. I was, I was choking on phlegm, um, so we need to go in. So I went in, uh, ended up in A&E. Not quite as busy as it is these days, but when I was in accident and emergency, um, a cardiologist came to see me. Luckily, I, that day I'd had the results from the echo, but I hadn't, had, I hadn't had a chance to see my GP. So I'd taken these echo results in and it showed my ejection fraction was in the um, high twenties. Um, so I showed him these results, explained things, and he says, "Well, um, you've got severe heart failure. You know that, don't you?" And, and I kind of we I'd started having that conversation with my GP, but I hadn't formally been diagnosed. So he was the first. That cardiologist was the first person to diagnose. So he said to me, um, well, you can be under you can be under cardiology here, if you want, in Blackburn, where, where you live. Or I was already under Manchester um, for my hypertrophic cardiomyopathy I had an ICD put in. Um, so I was under Manchester. I said, well, Manchester Heart Center is a specialist, uh, um, specialist, place. I'd rather go to Manchester. So he said, that's fine, but when you go there, you need to talk about having a heart transplant. And I was like, oh, sorry. And he said, yeah, you need to talk, start talking about having a heart transplant. You need a heart transplant. So I said, I've got other the patients I need to go and see now. So said, okay. Have you got any questions? I was like, uh, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, yes. And, and wow. we, did, we just didn't know what to say. My wife ran out of the room in tears. Uh, no and that was it. So we just left, just left with that sort of bombshell.
0: Hang it uh, over you for life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it was... That was that was probably the worst um moment apart from i said being told i'd be dead at 25 so um we know yeah, we know so don't
0: that... we gav with the community that we were part of a um, number of years now uh that the point of diagnosis is really important for mental health
1: yeah definitely yeah and it wasn't i think it was just shocking bedside manner i think to deliver any any of that news in you know almost in a rushed kind of well I've got to go now but here's, here's, here, I'll I throw this bombshell i I throw this hand grenade at you and then I'm I'm off myself and you can you can just hold that and wonder whether it's going to go off. Um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a great moment and and even when I saw at the ne- I was in the hospital for about two or three days and they managed to give me some. For a etc., and I hadn't started that at that stage. Get some fluid off, and I got felt a bit better. So I was in for a couple of nights. And um, I, when I saw another cardiologist, he, he apologized and said that shouldn't have happened, obviously like that. But what can you do? It was one of those. I, I don't. I think he was more. I, I don't know. I don't know. He was a fully qualified cardiologist. He was probably into like a, a medical student, or oh, I'm not sure. But I'm not. I'm not trying to excuse it. I just think it wasn't um, great.
0: I had the Exact experience as you did yeah. ten, nine years before that, oh, yeah. but um, basically said you've got heart failure, yeah, and that was it. Um, okay, so so where are where are you now then after that traumatic, um, inappropriate, um, way of delivering? Yeah, a,
1: yeah, a I mean, I mean I'm, in a much ba- I'm in a much better place now, um, last sort of echo, I was in high thirties. So I've been up titrated on all the usual medications of four pillars. Um, I had a heart failure nurse for about six months after uh, I came out of hospital. So um, that helped. Um I had a heart function um, consultant friend of pumping marvellous, uh, Colin. And um, so I'm under Two cardiologists at Manchester, one for the sort of the, the genetic sort of cardiomyopathy side of things, and then um, obviously the ICD team that monitors my device, and uh, and then the heart function and clinic. So I haven't seen anybody for a while. I had a, I think the phone consultation was the last time. But at the moment things are going reasonably well. I'm stable. Uh, I'm happy to be where I am. I'm not in the low twenties. Uh, I can walk, I do cardiac rehab a couple of times a week, a former cardiac rehab. We have a sort of a healthy living team that do uh, something at the gym with cardiac patients. Uh, so I go there twice a week. Um, I have my allotments. I've had to I had to take a medical retirement. That was a big decision, taking a medical retirement. Not long started this job. I've been there about 18 months, um, but I had to have uh, months off work and then, um, you get told you've got a life limiting conditions, you've got some decisions to make. I was in my 50s and so I was around 55 when I was diagnosed. So um, I was in the fortunate position. I worked for local authorities, so I had the option of taking a, a full uh, medical pension if I wanted to take that, which meant I'd get my full pension as if I'd retired at 67. So long conversations with my wife. Uh, and made decisions that um, yeah that was the best option for me if i was if i had a life limiting conditions i wanted the best quality of life that i could have and have that for you know however, however long i got so rather than trying to battle on work i think work would have finished me off i think if i'd tried to go back to work and carry on with the regime that i was doing i just it just wouldn't have coped uh, and work we understanding in that um so
0: so um, I've known you, first time we met was when we went down to London in February 2020. And I, yeah. I always look back on that and go, well, what an unbelievable experience it was. But boy, oh boy, how dangerous it was just before COVID. We yeah. had a, a whole uh, uh, busload of basically heart failure patients um, doing yeah. videoing in a London studio. Uh, late February. Um, it produced amazing videos and amazing assets that we still refer to now. Um, but what you're known for, and you know what I'm going to bring up, but you're Fruit and Veg, Gav. Um, and you really, really supported our patients quite a lot in the community during the first stages of the pandemic. Um, but you've sort of become the local resident um, uh <laughs> Um, fruit and veg gardening expert, to be honest with you. the Not the Alan Titchmarsh, uh, but I don't know, the Monty Don of Pumping Marvellous or whatever. Mm. Um, but you've taken that outside as well, haven't you? You've, you've expanded that. And do you want to talk to us about that as a hobby, where it came from and where you're at now?
1: Yeah, so, so I was, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm, gardening's a big passion of mine. I mean, I I used to get involved when my, my dad used to have an allotment um, down at Ewood Park on the side that I'm on. Uh, and I used to go down there as a kid and I used to help out I probably got in the way more than I did to actually help him out. But I used to follow him around doing little bits of things. And he used to show a lot of flowers as as well as growing fruit and veg, And I like the fruit and veg side of it as well as the flowers. So I did that for a while, um, helped him out. And then as I, as I got more into going out with my mates and going for a drink, that, that sort of side got abandoned. But I still used to go around. If he was showing at flower shows, I used to go around. And I used to admire all the, all the different things that were growing the flowers and the fruit and veg and the super-sized marrows and everything. Uh, and, and it never really crept away. So when we got our first house, and we've had this house over 30 years, um, the kind of gardening, although it wasn't a big garden, it was just nice to be able to grow little bits of things. Uh, and then when we went into the pandemic, just before uh, we went into the pandemic, um, the pandemic and and everybody went into lockdown i'd got on allotments I i realized that i was getting quite stressed by the work that i was doing i was advocating for vulnerable children and young people hearing a lot of horrific stories making sure that their voice was heard and working long hours and i needed something else to distract me and I, and I i came back fell back on this passion of gardening so i got on allotments had a word and I, my wife had um, worked with the allotment society had a word and said yeah we've got one or two that are coming up so i got on allotment so just before I got diagnosed, I was I was working hard, but I was also going down to the allotment. That it was a mess. So they like they dust,
0: are not they? Yeah,
1: yeah, very, very. It was very, very weedy and everything, and and difficult to get hold of. But I managed to get hold of one, so I'd been working on that. So while other people were sort of locking up their allotments for the for, for winter and not doing very much, I was down there turning it over, getting things, getting the weeds out, and getting it all ready for for the new season. I had quite a lot of work to do. So when we went into uh or I st- it was likely we were going into lockdown um i quickly took up part of the lawn at the back of the house and put two raised beds in uh with the thought that if i've got a little greenhouse and i've got a couple of uh raised beds i can g- carry on growing some fruit and veg if i can't get down to the allotments. And, and true we went into lockdown and we we were part of the group that were um protected we needed to be um kept away from the general population so our house and our back garden became like my sort of like my growing space and I had to rely on getting people friends and family to bring things in so when it when we started talking about doing the um the webcast and and chatting with people and and the idea of the book club and the thing and then gardening came along and you asked me could I get involved in the gardening? It, it was a natural thing for me to do. Is yeah, I'm quite happy to. I can I can demonstrate what little bits I can in my back garden. I'm not I'm not a Monty Don. I haven't got a, a massive you know four acre site where a, and a team behind me that can pull out all the pots when they need to and you name know, the plants. But I'm quite happy to show people how to plant a few seeds, do your pumpkins, do your summer flowers. Here's what I can grow in my back garden and that. And it was quite enjoyable because it, again it brought that. I'm a social person and it brought that social capacity back it, it gave me an opportunity to chat with other people get involved and, and i love you know working with everybody kate and gary um, and sir and everybody it, it was an opportunity to share a little bit of knowledge share a bit of passion uh, and, and do something more interesting and, and reconnect with the world if you will
0: you got you got us all gardening i mean i still i pulled up some potatoes uh, you know um i i'm an avid chili and pepper um capsicum type sort of pepper grower uh which i never touched before and uh, i tried to do too much the first year and yeah. uh, if you remember the butt of the jokes was courgettes <laughs> I, had, I had more courgettes than tesco down the road um yeah but i am i'm dealt with courgettes yet but um um so you're, you're this avid gardener i uh, will and you offer great advice on the group i know you put a little little caveat at the bottom say don't blame me for anything that goes wrong um <laughs> yeah, you yeah. you know you've got you've got um and you know delve into a little bit of you i, I can you talk us through when you when the london Mar- when when rich one of our patient educators was running who's actually on a podcast um was running the london marathon we had virtual london marathon places and um uh, and we, we uh, as a team, um, walked around the guild wheel. And I didn't, I didn't make it. I, my feet were absolutely mm. red hot. Um, but you did, and I remember seeing you doing the very, very last stretch to the office. Um, do you want to talk about that to us? Because I think that that's very much you.
1: Yeah. Again, again, it, it, for me, it's all about giving back. It's I've had some amazing opportunities in my life, and it's it's an opportunity. I'm I'm always wanted to help other people. So again, it, it came up. It was one of those, and it thought, could I really do this? And I'd been doing quite a little bit of walking. The only thing we could do, wasn't it? Where you could go out and walk when we had we had the lockdown. You could get out. You go for your daily walk. So we started walking. But I I live in a in a in a valley basically. Um so if I leave my house, I can only walk 20 yards and I either to go up or I go down. So it was one of those. I started doing walks and we stretched it and stretched it and stretched it. And then slowly as we got more and more release from things, we started doing a few more kilometers, started walking up and down the hills and and wanted to cr- contribute to the global race. So we ended up doing something. I think it, I think the most i had done was about eight kilometers. And then when the opportunity came up to do a London marathon, I thought, could I really do that? Is there an opportunity? Could I? could I really go that far and and could I do it? So I thought, well, go on then. You talk me into it. We'll give it a go, but I can only go as far as I can go. And I've always known my own limits. When I was, I told you, when I was at school, if we did any running races or whatever, I always knew my own limits. I knew when to quit. I knew when I would black out and everything, but I'm one of these people that I want to finish something. Um, I do circular walks. I don't like walking out and coming back down to the same place. So when, um, It was an opportunity to do the the Guild Wheel. I thought, well, it's a circular walk. Uh, It's longer than I've pushed myself. It's worth doing. It's a good cause. I'll raise a few quid. Might encourage one or two other people to do it, so why not give it a go? Um, So we set off, and I remember it being really damp. It was classic Lancashire weather, which we expected fully. But I was fully waterproof. I'd done, I'd I'd worked with Sea Cadets, um, or I'd been like a a walking leader uh, instructor, so I'd been up mountains and things, so I knew, what I had to put on. So I had all my gear. I was all layered up and everything. And the walk, Walking in rain and cold never never bothered me. Um, the thing that I found the trickiest was when we got to Preston docks. Um, and this is one of those moments. It's, I told you I don't like repeating the same thing. And, and the guild wheel wasn't long enough to do the full distance for the marathon. So we had to do three laps of Preston docks. And that nearly crippled me. Not physically, but psychologically, because it was repeating the one thing that I don't like when I'm doing it, and I think the other challenge for me was um, walking in a group. You you you've got to you've got to walk at the pace of the you know the slowest person, and that's a challenge. If if you're somebody that knows you've got a limited amount of capacity, which I now have, I know I've got a limit. I've got limits that I can do, then. I know I'm fresh in in the early stages. I've got it when I when I've got the energy, I've got to use it. I've got to go with it, and then when I haven't, that's it. I've got to stop. So having to keep taking rests, it, it was like it was like starting and stopping, starting and stopping, and, and then psychologically going around the the, the Preston Docks. And um, that that was a real challenge. Um, I remember we came away from Preston Docks and we had quite a, a big uphill stretch, and that was quite tough. And um, I think we were about halfway there. We, we were just gone over halfway. Uh, but we kept going. I mean, people get going, I mean, we had um, Rajiv, who, who had it. He was walking. I can't remember what he had an injury, anyway, didn't he? he Have some kind of he had injury a broken foot, didn't he, or something? Yeah, something like he's torn his ligaments or something was thinking, and he was still limping along. And I thought, well, if this guy can do it on that, and I'm I'm not injured, I'm I'm just like breathless or whatever, and I can do it. I can keep going. So, I just I just kept going. But I, we came. I think it was probably about twenty-four miles. I think we got to about twenty-four miles. And i had gone at that stage, I, I just, I just remember thinking, well, I don't remember a lot actually at the time I was kind of, I wasn't, it was almost like an out of body moment. I was just walking. I just knew I had to keep walking. I had to keep walking. That was, that was all that was in my mind. Keep walking. And then I think I started talking. I think it was Kate. I started talking to Kate and I said, I'm struggling to talk cause my tongue's gone numb. I don't know why my tongue's gone numb. And um Kate kind of looked at me and, and, um, I thought, I think there's not something right. And then they were trying to get the two um, cardiologists to come up and have a look. And I believe I'd gone as white as a sheet, I think all the thing, and I'd, I'd literally gone into shock. Um, I think my body had gone like, you've done enough now, you need to quit, you need to sort of that thing. And I sat down on, on the edge of the thing and all the blood drained back in. Um, but I told you I'm, a, I'm not a quitter. There was no way I was gonna do 24 miles and not do 26 miles, uh, The last the last bit so we made the executive decision that i would be uh, transported back to a flatter area which was your near your office and we worked out a circuit and my son had joined me at that stage and uh, his girlfriend and between us uh, i did sort of three laps around the industrial estate where your office was to finish uh the distance and was, yeah so it, it was relief when i did it but i was i was extremely chuffed that i managed to do it but again that's kind of me, it's like, I, I don't want to quit. I don't want to give up. All these people are relying
0: on me. So I needed to do it. That was definitely the most memorable part of that walk for me. Um, and for everybody, I think. And I think the two cardiologists that were involved uh, were absolutely astonished um, that you'd literally walk them off their feet. Um, mm. You know, so we've come to the end of the, the, the podcast, um, but we need to ask you the question, and I, I'm really interested where this is going to go, but what is your secret sauce? What makes Gav tick? What, what's made you, what's What's taken you through some of the diversity that you've had most recently?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think for me it is, it, as I said, I've always had this strong moral compass. Yeah? I've always had this sense of what's wrong and what's right, and I've always wanted to fight for the little man. Um, you know, I've always wanted to, I've done a lot of jobs where it's around supporting communities, supporting vulnerable groups of young people. Um, so working with children in care, working with children that have got Asperger's, etc., working with children with disabilities, doing youth work, so going, supporting the people that haven't got a lot of money, making sure we can get, you know, buying equipment, make sure we've got everything that we can. So wanting to support other people has always been my thing so even when i was a magistrate you don't think of magistrates as people you think of them as people that dispense justice but i always thought about it was about dispensing for justice it was about when we had you when you sit as a bench of, of magistrates there's three magistrates on there um and when i was chairing when i was the chairman of the bench i would make sure that everybody's views got encountered and so we might have a strong person that was saying what they need to go to prison etc but then i wanted to make sure that we always got all the information out that we we took everything on board that was things so dispensing fair justice uh, was always a, a key passion of mine so when i see people maybe that have had a similar story to me with heart failure when people um don't feel like they're getting a, a fair deal from cardiologists or heart failure nurses or other people or services are accessing them. I'm one of these people that wants to use my story to say, well, actually I, I had a similar situation, but I've come through that. Now. I want to, I want to make sure that the cardiologists and other people listen to some of the things that can go wrong and change their practice so that everybody gets a, a, a fair uh, health journey. Really that that's all There's the, we know there's not a, a massive amount of money. There's not a massive pot of things. You know, the NHS is on its knees. There's not There's not a, a, the same services that were when I was a child, but it's about making sure that everybody gets fair access to whatever there is. So making sure that we use that wisely and fairly and, and justly for everybody.
0: And some of the changes that we can make that need to be made don't cost any money.
1: No, 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 you're right. And And some of the... The, the new way the new ways of working uh and sometimes it's about explaining to patients why things are done the way they are they don't at the time they, do, they don't seem fair they don't seem thing but it's a new way of working. it might be the only way that we can we can get it for now but it's better than having nothing so if i can use some of my secret sauce if you will some of my passion my commitment my desire to improve things for other people then that's what i'll do i'll I'll use whatever I've got my secret sauce to uh, improve things for other people.
0: Well, it's been, you know, a fantastic conversation that we've had. Um, I've learned a lot more about you than I didn't know. Um, I, you know, I, you you, as a person, you've got so much to offer. Uh, I know that um, and in many different ways and I, I sort of follow, follow what you're doing anyway. And, um, and you're a great patient educator for the charity uh, and you add, you've added massive value and you've helped a lot of people um, in many different ways, um, uh, as is Pumping Marvelous, which is about helping people to live better. It may not be great, but to give you a little bit of impetus and live better with heart failure. And, and you know, I think your example of you know, finding something that you really want to do um, you know, and, and really go for your passion and don't give up and you know that that's you are you are you are tougher than maybe people think you are um so i I very much appreciate the the conversation thank you very much for all your help i know it will continue um and
1: uh thank you very much gav appreciate it yeah cheers nick and thanks for starting the charity to allow me the opportunity to to
0: this doesn't happen by magic so if you like what you hear please donate to support our cause Visit Just Giving and search for the Pumping Marvelous Foundation. Every penny counts. Heart failure and beyond.